I think the, the, the kind of the best thing about what we do is as an industry, like we're the we're who people turn to to celebrate or, or, or to fall in love or to celebrate love or anything as corny as that. It, it really is. It's us to deliver the, the best nights of people's lives. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Australia is somewhat of an anomaly. The culinary landscape is built off the back of migration patterns by those that have chosen to make their lives down under. What is it about Australia that captures the imagination of so many hospitality professionals? Casey Wall is a chef and co-owner of Bar Liberty, Falco and Capitano in Melbourne. Casey, how are you? I'm very well. How are you today? I'm good. It's great to get you on the show. You've got a couple of cracking venues making such a huge impact on the culinary landscape in Melbourne. How, how are things going? Everything's going really well for us. It's uh, obviously the worst time of the year for weather. But um, other than that, um, I think everyone's got used to it being cold and dreary. So they're coming back out in full force and embracing uh, this winter period that I hate so much about Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, it's it's well documented that um, Melbourne and Victoria experienced, you know, some pretty brutal lockdowns over the last couple of years with the turbulence of, of COVID, but you've got three different venues. Um, is there a sense of optimism and sort of leaving that all behind now? Yeah, hundred percent. I, I mean, we all just try not to talk about it ever again. So uh, <laughs> I, I think for most of us, we've, uh, we try to block that out of our memories, but, um, I think everything is starting to self-correct. Um, you know, starting to see more international um, chefs and students coming back in, which fills a small gap of the mar- uh, of the employment market. Um, and yeah, that's that's really the, the biggest thing post lockdown was the lack of staff. Um, whether you know chefs left the industry um, or they just disappeared, full stop, going back to their um, native countries, but. Yeah, I think everything is really on the way on the way up now. Have, do you approach things a little bit differently, um, you know, with three very different businesses sort of than you perhaps would have three or four years ago? I think so. It's um, I think the biggest growth that me and my business partner have kind of done personally was just really stepping back to allow uh, this, this the talented staff that we have hired over the years to just do their thing and, uh, and not try to micromanage. Like it's really hard to let go of something that you opened and, and had success with, but you also have to trust that you can hire and uh, hire employees that have the same vision as you do, even though they may not get to the same result in the, on, on the same path. So it's, it, that's uh, something that's really helped us. And, in, in retaining staff and growing and uh, making the business more fun for everyone. What have been some of the benefits for you with that sort of approach, even though it was difficult to let go a little bit? Uh, I think you definitely learn more. Um, you, you only know what you know. Uh, obviously, surrounding yourself by talented chefs, uh, you, you can teach each other little things and, and systems. But if you're still running the show, you kind of restrict growth in a way. I mean, you do embrace like ideas and changes, but it's still in the day you're like, that's not, you're still putting your thumbprint on the things like stepping back allows 
systems to really develop and new ideas to really come out and um, and viewpoints and ideas that you would never would have gotten to if you were still even even like minutely micromanaging. Um, it's it's interesting to see how uh, the young chefs embrace and, and grow faster um, if you just take that little step back. You have an incredible knack of creating venues that are really sort of part of the new wave of um, dining and eating out in Australia. Tell us a little bit about the, the three venues that you've got. Um, I guess the oldest one now would be Bar Liberty. That's uh, just our little wine bar here. We we opened that in, oh man, I can't even remember when we opened that, what year that was. 2000, and I know I told you an email, but 2017 maybe? I may be wrong on that. Um, it was, yeah, it's just, we didn't know what, what to do and that when, what we were doing when we opened it. We wanted to create a, a venue that anyone could use in whatever manner that they wanted. Uh, in, the, in the very beginning days, it was very much used as a wine bar. We'd have people coming in, having some wine and a snack, leaving, having a lot of fun going to their dinner and then coming back afterwards and, and staying until we closed because it had so much time or have so much fun in the venue. And then over a few months, people were like, oh, the food's pretty good here. So they ended up staying and, and, and then it just blew up at that point. It, it be, it's more 50-50 restaurant wine bar now than it was <laughs> when we first started, which might have been like 80% wine bar, 20% restaurant. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty fun to see it grow. We just didn't want to have, we didn't want anyone to feel uncomfortable coming in and only having a glass of wine because there were some of these venues in Melbourne that if you just did that, it was really awkward just to have a, a nice glass of wine and chat with your friend. Uh, it was definitely a restaurant built as a wine bar and we wanted no one to feel uncomfortable in this space. So, uh, it did take some time to grow, but, uh, I think Melbourne's fully embraced, any customer at this point on the back of the lockdown and with the um, lingering um, recession. So you'll take whoever you can get in the doors at this time. Um, <laughs> Capitano is, uh, it's an Italian-ish restaurant, I would say. I mean, there there is pizza and pastas, but it's not firmly rooted in the, the Melbourne-like tradition of um, so many great Italian venues across town we want to do something a little different. Uh, I didn't grow up really eating much Italian food, um, but I've always enjoyed it living in New York city and stuff. So we wanted to have, uh, you know, pizzas and pastas that we all love to eat, but with our little spin on them. And some of it, some of it gets fairly traditional then some of them get a little out there, but, uh, I, I still think it's a super tasty restaurant and, uh, a lot of hard work goes into making the pizza doughs and, and pastas and stuff every day. So it's a, it's a simple space, you know, it's a simple menu, but there's a lot of work behind the scenes. I think that's what we do pretty well across all our venues is hide the amount of work that we do <laughs> in giving and delivering the product. Uh, and then finally the, the, the newest one, which is, I guess, four years old now is Falco. Uh, that, that was probably, um, lucky we opened it when we opened it because it, it opened in December of uh, 2019. If we drug our feet anymore on that, we may not have a venue today because um, that was you know just on the cusp of the of uh, the COVID outbreak. I guess March two, 2020 was about when it kicked off here. 
So it was, um, we just had enough time to get it going. Uh, and then lockdown happened. And, and actually, we were probably busier in lockdown than we are now. <laughs> Oddly enough, the, baker, the I think bakeries across Australia did really well in that time. They, they certainly did. There's so much to talk about with what you're doing at the moment and, and also delve into the world of Rockwell and Sons, which we can get to shortly. But um, take us back to when you were young. You're originally from North Carolina. What was life like for you when you were a kid and what sort of role did food play? Um, I think food was way more important than I thought it was growing up. Um, I think when you're around great food a lot, you, you don't necessarily know that that's not normal. Uh, my grandma, uh, grandmother was a great cook, uh, cooked Southern, you know, just Southern food, nothing else. You, there was never any deviation of it. It was uh, squash casserole, pinto beans and cornbread, you know, biscuits. She made rolls, um, lots of pies, um, chicken and dumplings, like stuff like that. Things you've heard about in Southern food. Uh, my family background has all, always been kind of um, farming uh, tobacco fields in North Carolina, which is a huge industry that has since kind of dropped off for obvious reasons. And we also had a dairy farm uh, in our family. So that's always, farming's always been a big part of what we did. Um, and preservation was huge. My, my grandmother's basement was just filled with jars of everything from summer. Um, you know, green beans, corn, uh, preserved squashes, um, tomatoes. She just had jars of tomatoes that we used throughout the year. Um, it, was, it was different. I just didn't know that was a, a normal thing to do until I got out on my own and met other people. <laughs> and then it's like, there wasn't much grocery shopping. My grandfather, uh, you see them all over the South, these old men in overalls. And uh, it, it could be 100 degrees or what's that, uh, 40 40-ish degrees Celsius, you know, outside. He's in overalls and a flannel shirt sitting under the shade tree with a little table selling all this stuff he grew in the farm, you know, tomatoes, cucumber, squash. It's, it's fun. That's uh, how a lot of people do grocery shopping. Maybe not. In, there's, still, there's still people doing that nowadays, but it's a way less of a common occurrence. I think those, that older generation has finally passed away. But, yeah, growing up, you would just stop on the side of the road and grab you know, tomatoes and cucumbers on the way home uh, after baseball practice or whatever, and that was dinner. Is, is there any sort of dish, you know, from your childhood or the region or North Carolina that you look back fondly of that you can share with us? Uh, my favorite dish to eat growing up were uh, pinto beans and cornbread. Um, that was a staple. We had that all the time. Um, you know, so one of my great-grandmothers made a, an incredible strawberry pie that, that – resonates pretty strongly in my in my memories uh, but also like uh, peach cobbler peach cobbler is probably one of my all-time favorites of the stuff that my family cooked also there's a huge tradition of uh, barbecue in North Carolina and that that was a cornerstone of, of you know, that's probably the only thing we really paid for growing up eating out is at barbecue restaurants Tell us about sort of that period of time after you've left school. Were you always headed for a career in food or were you on a different path? No, not at all. I thought I, I, thought I was just going to be a lifelong student. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I uh, went to school 
Um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I just kept taking more classes, ended up double majoring with a couple of minors, and that took me uh, an extra semester to knock out. So I stayed at school for an extra semester, you know, four and a half years as opposed to the normal uh, four years. And I applied to the grad schools, uh, applied to some law schools. I wasn't sure why I applied to law school. I just didn't know what to do, so I applied to them. Um, and the whole time in, at university, I was cooking as a part-time job. Really enjoyed it. And uh, when I graduated in December, I had a mission into grad school that next August. But I had a good chunk of time uh, where I started cooking full-time and really uh, fell into it, fell in love with it. That was, um, I think, um, <laughs> it's really funny. I'm probably one of the only uh, American chefs that got interested in cooking through English food. I know that sounds absurd, but, uh, <laughs> well, it was, I just remember being, uh, BBC America came out in the States probably end of, end of the late nineties. Uh, don't hold me to that 99 or so. And I graduated high school in 2001 and we used to watch a lot of BBC America for whatever reason at university. Uh, and I started like, that's when Ramsey's like kitchen nightmares and F word came out and then Hugh Fernley winning. So, uh, with the river cottage stuff, I was just in, like, I was, I just loved it. I think there was, I could associate with river cottage seeing what they were doing and kind of like loosely associated with like the farming that my grandfather and, uh, uh uncles and stuff did. So that was always something I became super interested in, interested in, but that was, uh, yeah, I didn't think I'd ever be a chef. I thought I would probably be a college professor somewhere um, doing who knows what, teaching <laughs> philosophy or something. Where, where did you make the call to sort of cement a career in hospitality and what was it like those first couple of years? Uh, I was working at a really nice restaurant in North Carolina and it uh, using a lot of great local produce and things. Uh, it was... At the time, I thought that was like fine dining compared to like, you know, my food, the, f the food history I had growing up. We never went to fancy restaurants or anything. So I was like, this place is like one of the best restaurants in the world. And, you know, shortly after you learned that maybe that wasn't the best restaurant in the world. But they cooked, um, <laughs> they cooked great things uh, with great, great produce, made a very conscious effort to uh, utilize uh, small farms and, and things, uh, which I really... Um, really loved about it you know this one guy would come he'd back his pickup truck to the back gate of the restaurant and it'd just be full of tomatoes we'd just go out there and take all the tomatoes we wanted um, for the next couple of days and this would happen every few days during summer and then there's always someone coming to the back of the restaurant and dropping off stuff or you pick what you want and just pay for it um, so it was interesting interesting so I tried to get a job in New York City and no one would hire me because I just had a little bit of experience in North Carolina. So I, I said, I'm not, I'm going to, I deferred admission to grad school. I was like, I'm going to put it off here, kept that line open, um, and decided to try to make it in New York city. And I, I couldn't get a job, um, that I kind of wanted to work at. So then I went to CIA for not very long, which is the culinary Institute of America. Um, I started 
we do class during the day and I would, I would take a train down to New York city after class almost every day, four or five times a week, and then just stage at a restaurant. Um, and then get, get the train back at like one in the morning, you sleep for a couple hours and go to school. So that's just what I was doing. <laughs> and finally ran into, um, April Bloomfield at the spotted pig. And she was like, you're wasting your time and money at culinary school. Let me, let me offer you a job. Uh, and, and that was not because I, I don't think because I was some great chef at by any stretch of the imagination. I just think she liked, um, the determination then or whatever. I, I was not a good chef at the time. I fully admit that. <laughs> but then, then I had a really bad car accident, uh, like the next week. And I was, and that was it for, I, I didn't think I'd ever cook again. I thought that was pretty much done. Um, I was still at CIA and I was driving from Poughkeepsie to New Paltz and had a car accident and broke my pelvis, broke my foot. Um, uh, Broke my hip in half. Oh, like, broke my pelvis in half. Broke my hip. Uh, tore my knee ligaments. Broke my arm. It was it was a pretty bad car accident, and so that was it. I was I was shelved up for. I was in the hospital for three weeks, and then I just in a wheelchair for like another eight weeks after that, and then then with the walker, uh, and then I was I was at my parents' house for a good while of that time and then i watched a lot of bbc america <laughs> i'm not even lying <laughs> it's like pretty much non-stop bbc america uh um but yeah that was i, I thought i was done because i it took me so long to be able to walk again i didn't know if i'd be able to stand doing 10 12 hour days in the kitchen um, but that you know over time and and um it was really interesting doing that. Um, after a few weeks, and this is probably the only reason I went back into cooking after after a few weeks, April, I, I doubt she'll even remember me working for her or this even happening. Um, but she texted me and asked if I was okay because she hadn't heard from me for a while. I told her I had a car accident. And then she was like, all right, well, when do you recover? Let me know. And uh, just come back to work for, or come to work for us. And I was like, you know, I, I said, thank you. And then every, every few weeks she would send me a text message and ask me if I was all right. And that kind of, kind of kept me going, uh, kept me interested in cooking as opposed to just defaulting and going back to grad school. And then after, after a while I went to just said, I, I got back where I could stand on my feet for a while and all that and, and moved to New York. And the, and the rest is history. <laughs> you ended up working at the, the Spotted Pig. What, what was it like finally getting there and working with April? Uh, she was great. Uh, she's uh, the best chef I've ever worked for. And, and everyone I know that worked for us said the same thing. Uh, it's just, um, it, her attention to detail is something that, it is unrivaled and how you have to make this food look perfectly rustic. It's an, it's an insane way to play um, food. It, it looks um, like it's not manipulated, but it is definitely manipulated the food that she does and, and the way she layers things and builds dishes and, and textures and, and hides things in dishes. It, it, it's, 
unreal. I, I, I love working for her. I didn't work for her for as long as I wanted to or um, should have. That was um, due to the car accident. I was getting a little too... I, I'll never like say I was addicted to painkillers or anything like that. Uh, I don't want to, uh, you know, try to p- put a spin on it. But I was getting a little too comfortable with just working, um, taking painkillers when I, I probably more than I should be to to actually work. And it was a conversation that I, because it was long days and late nights at the Spotted Pig. We'd finish at two in the morning, uh, and then you'd I'd get my hour train back to. Uh, my apartment and then go to bed at five or six in the morning and sleep until nine or 10. I just wasn't, uh, I just couldn't sleep well because of my hip pain and stuff. And uh, I was probably a little too comfortable taking pain medicine to work. So I had a conversation with her and she totally understood. And then I, I got a job that was, that finished a little bit earlier in the, <laughs> in the evening. So I could uh, uh, sleep well and recover and all that. It's such a um, huge accident and impact on you physically and mentally. And, it, you know, chefs are standing up all the time. It's such a physical, um, unrelenting sort of job. How, how, how did you manage, you know, that recovery and working and earning your stripes in a kitchen um, to ensure that your, your health? And that, I mean, that's, that's a good question. I, I think a lot of it was just, stupidity and pushing through, <laughs> uh, ignoring, ignoring the pain signals. But I, I, I guess I understood too, from like conversations with my doctor and surgeon that there was, there would always be like a, a small base level of, of not necessarily pain, but being uncomfortable with the injuries that I had. So I just kind of knew when to push it, knew when to take, uh, uh, knew when I had to like acknowledge it and make sure I was doing stretches and foam rolling and all that stuff to, to help out with the process. But yeah, a lot of it's just, I mean, there's, even if you have zero, uh, no injuries to yourself, um, working in the kitchen's hard and it's just, it grinds you out, um, pretty quickly. It's, uh, it's definitely similar to like being an athlete, you know, there's there's a there's a limited a limited time frame where you where you can do it uh, as well uh, as you should be able to do, and it's a it's a young person's game for sure. You, you had that accident at a time when you were quite young and it was a formative period, and you'd been to university and you kind of wanted to get into food. Did did it did that sort of experience and that that accident have a an impact on sort of you in regards to what you wanted to get out of your life moving forward? Um, I, I think it, you do become, you do realize how, how precious things are. I, you're still young enough where you probably don't fully understand it. You still think you can do anything whenever you want to do it. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely made me be a little bit more thankful for everything and the experiences that I had the opportunity to do after the accident. 100%. You've been a, such a fixture in Australian culinary landscape for over a decade now. Um, what, what triggered a move to Australia? <laughs> uh, a friend of mine, um, his name's Luke Morrison. He, <laughs> not a chef, he just studied abroad at the university that I went to. Uh, we became very good friends. 
uh, he, he's from Melbourne and he, <laughs> he just kept coming back to America and sleeping on my couch. Um, <laughs> for some uh, a couple of months at a time, you know, in New York for a month at a time, uh, it just, just kept happening. So, uh, they, I think on the backside, I may be wrong about this, but I think for Australia's involvement in uh, the Middle East crisis around, you know, the backside of 9-11, America gave Australia some um, different visas um, for Australian employees, and then Australia gave America the uh, work and holiday visa scheme. So I, uh, when that kind of kicked through, he sent me an email and he was like, do you want to come stay on my couch for a couple of months? And I was like, yeah, 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 that's it. I had zero uh, intentions of ever living here. I was going to come down, hang out, maybe get a, a job um, for six months. And then the plan, and this is insane, was to go up and take the Trans-Siberian Railroad to Moscow and then another train from Moscow to London and try to find a job there. I had a couple of friends um, that had worked in London and had some contacts there, but uh, that never happened. I, I've never been on that train and <laughs> I've, been, I've been in Australia since uh, 2010. What, what did you think of uh, the restaurants and the culinary landscape when you first arrived? Did it surprise you? It did. It was just so different. I mean, like, there's not much culture shock between Australia and, and United States. Um, it's, yeah, I think, the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand. It, it, it's very similar. Um, the newer countries, obviously, there's not that long European history of like of England or or Ireland or something like that. Um, so they're all very similar countries. Coming to Australia. It, not much of a culture shock at all, but the restaurants were so different. Uh, I'd never, uh, at that time, and, and I still think today, um, it's, it's definitely changing today, but at the time, there was like no middle-tiered restaurant. It was kind of like the pub dominated everything. So you had these really high-end restaurants that were amazing, uh, really good, maybe like first generation or even like uh, – immigrant restaurants, um, whether it's Middle Eastern or, or Asian or whatever, but those were kind of cheap and cheerful, um, for reasons that's been talked about for many of times. Um, but there was no like middle ground. I felt like the pub just kind of dominated. So finding a job was different. It, it, you know, looking at restaurants, I would probably never apply to that types of restaurants I'd never apply to in New York. Um, I was applying to here and it opened up some doors for me. That was, um, that changed how I looked at food and stuff. And I won't lie. The first couple of trials I did in Australia, I was, I was kind of un, unsold on the food scene here. <laughs> I, I won't, I won't say any names. That's That would be silly, but it was a, one was a two hat restaurant and one was a three hat restaurant. And I was, uh, I actually, I did those two trials and then, I looked for plane tickets back to America. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I don't know if I can, because I thought I would save some money to do this trip, you know, in the Trans-Siberian Road, but I had pretty much blown through all the money I brought. And I was like, I got to go back to the States. Um, and then um, the next day, Andrew McConnell called me 
uh, for a job at Cutler and Co. I applied for a job. I applied for a job at Cutler before I came and never heard anything back. And then I got here and I applied for a job at, after those trials went badly, I'd, I'd sent a resume to um, Cumulus. And then Andrew called me and was like, I, I have a job for you at Cutler and Co. And that was so much fun. Such a great restaurant to work at. Uh, Andrew's an amazing chef and the way he views food and, and products and stuff is, is really um, second to none. Do you have any stories of what it's like to work with Andrew and uh, in his kitchens? Um, he's just, <laughs> he, he, he's so switched on and so smart, um, but he, he, he doesn't like uh, ever try to, like, he doesn't like, he doesn't sit there and like belittle you or, um, or talk for just to talk to, so people know that he's smart or anything. He just is really reserved, but he also has like some uh, hilariously moments of chaotic energy that are, um, I just remember one night we were setting up for, <laughs> setting up for service. I, I want to say we were probably within 15 or 30 minutes of opening for service and he comes in and, and just turns on. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> I can't even think of the, Oh man, what, it was this that that viral clip of um, hide your children, uh, hide your wives. There, um, someone had broken into someone's home and they re- uh, they made this crazy like auto tune song about it. And he comes in and plays it. I, I, I whatever out of a hundred it was, it was a, as loud as possible the speaker could go. And it's just and then that went segued right into peaches, and I could see. I mean, I don't know. The kitchen couldn't recover from that. It was, it was, it was pretty funny, but it was just like, he's, he knows how to have a good time. And, uh, he has very clear expectations of staff, but it's not, it was never a, a miserable place to work. It was, it was hard, but a lot of fun. And, uh, that's, that's a, that's a very difficult thing to achieve in a kitchen. Rockwell and Sons is something we haven't touched on yet, but it made such a huge impact on um, not only Melbourne, but across Australia and was on the best burgers list, one best burger in Australia, all sorts of things. H- how did it start? Uh, that again was just pure stupidity. <laughs> me, me and my business partner, Manu, had, um, we'd done a few pop-ups in around Melbourne, uh, a couple of events and things, uh, linked up with some uh, people from Good Beer Week at its very, like, um, infantile, like, conception of it. Like, and they asked us to do some events for them. Uh, so we had, like, a little bit of a, a fun following going on, and we met a guy who had a cafe on Smith Street, and he offered us the space to come in. And we had no, we had no business opening a restaurant. We had no business <laughs> running a restaurant. Um, we had no, it had, Rockland Sons had zero business ever staying in business, but we, we somehow like just through our hard work, it, it, it finally called on. It was, uh, yeah, we, we had no idea what we were doing. The last, the, we, we kind of wanted to open up this and the Rockwell that, what, what became Rockwell is not the restaurant we opened. Um, we were just trying to open like these restaurants that we loved uh, in Brooklyn. 
which would make way more sense now in the Melbourne dining scene because um, th- that middle tier of, of, of dining is, is really established itself, you know, with the wine bars and, and the similar kinds of restaurants. Um, we were, these, these restaurants in Brooklyn where you could go in, have a, a really great meal, uh, seasonal produce and stuff, or you could sit at the bar and have like a great cocktail and eat a, eat a burger. Um, it was kind of however you wanted to use the restaurant. Um, so we were getting like whole pigs in, whole lamb, like doing these composed dishes, um, lots of vegetable dishes and stuff. And then I just, at the, at the very last minute, we put this, we had a flat top left over from the cafe. And I was like, oh, we should do a burger. And the burger would be like, you know, something we would probably sell like 10 a night of. I, I, that's what I thought. You know, people would maybe come in and have a burger at the bar and, and leave. I, I thought we were really going to build like a Collingwood locals type restaurant. And uh, that very quickly, um, they very quickly turned into a burger restaurant. <laughs> there wasn't that many of them at the time. I think Huxta Burger had just, the, it hadn't been open super long. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it, maybe six months before we opened, eight months. I, I could be wrong on that. I, 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 don't, I know it wasn't a super long time before we opened, but um, there wasn't, I think that was just right at the cusp of the, the whole burger thing popping off in, in Melbourne. And you saw a lot of the global financial crisis and the Australian dollar being so strong um, just opened up all the travel to America. So you get all these American food ideas coming back. You know, that was when, the, uh, when Mexican, like that like kind of American Mexican restaurant was going you know, huge in, in Australia and stuff like that. So it really, I think that lined up and people kind of had fun in doing vacations to American stuff and it kind of embraced like these, this like burger and fried chicken kind of thing that popped off in, in Melbourne and across the country. And we were just there at the right time, I guess. Tell us a little bit about the burger that you were doing because it was a little bit different to traditionally what Australians know of a burger. I mean, to be honest, it was just a double quarter pounder of cheese and Big Mac sauce. <laughs> That's pretty much what it was. <laughs> but yeah, we um, the, the biggest thing we tried to do was uh, we wanted a burger that was the same year around. And that's just all I wanted to do. Like it was, I, I didn't want to put vegetables and stuff on it. Uh, I, I don't love tomatoes and, and lettuce on burgers at, at the best of times. Um, but yeah, like just the idea of using out of season produce on this burger and, and treating the burger as seriously as we treated the other dishes on the menu, which is probably why it stuck. But like looking back on it, we, it, we, we, when we built the menu, it was, we put as much time as this, as we did, uh, to the, the dishes that we're using the, the whole animals for and some of the awfully dishes that we had the start, you know, we opened up with the, the sweet bread and carrots dish and, you know, uh, corned, corned beef to our ox tongue and stuff. So it's like these fun little dishes that we, we built, we, um, we put as much time as this burger and, and it really stuck. Uh, it was just trying to get the, I found a lot of the burgers in Australia were very gristly. And I think uh, that was probably just trying to get as much money as the cow out of the, the whole cow as possible from the butcher shop. So we, we had to work with some people to get like the mince blend that we really wanted for the burgers. 
had to use American cheese because that is just <laughs> the best burger cheese. Uh, and then just a very simple sauce that we put on the burger, and that was it. And I think people in, in embraced the, the simplicity of it. You ended up closing Rockwell and Sons in 2019. Was it was that a hard decision to make? Not at all. <laughs> uh, it was still making very good money for me and Manu. Um, uh, it wasn't something like, oh, touch and go, like, should we close it, should we not? It, we just simply didn't want to do it anymore. Out of, uh, I think we had grown up a little bit since... Um, we opened it. Uh, it was food that we were less and less likely to eat on a, you know, like even on a weekly basis or a, a fortnightly basis. And we just had the tough decision one day to be like, uh, let's close it down in a, in a month. And and the rent was still like really reasonable. So and we had money um, set aside so we didn't have to like scramble to do something else. And uh, had a very the last month that we were open the last couple of weeks we were open was insanity the amount of people flying in from interstate uh, multiple times to eat uh, before we closed a couple people got tattoos of rock on sons <laughs> I'm not joking it's insanity um, I didn't I think we kind of lost sight of how much people adored it because me and Manu were tired of it you know it is kind of this thing that we had fallen out of love with, but it was still such a big part of a lot of people's like life. And I still get people that come up to me and uh, that, uh, that I don't remember meeting or I've never met or just recognize me from Rockwell and Sons and talk about it. And, uh, it it's always very humbling. Um, but yeah, we just, one day we're like, let's just do it. Let's just close it or we're never going to close it. We closed it and came up with a couple ideas. Um, and then luckily, uh, Christine Tran, our, our business partner, um, fell into our laps and uh, we decided to open a bakery. That was kind of, um, that was with me and Manu and, and Michael, uh, who is a, who's just left the, the group a few months ago. Uh, super, super driven, talented guy. Like he's, He's such a, a gem for the industry, and um, he's focusing on a couple other proje- uh, projects that he has going. But yeah, like we opened, we've, we we bumped into Christine, and uh, Manu had, I think, hung out with her in San Francisco or Copenhagen at some food conference and became kind of friendly. And yeah, next thing you know, we were open a bakery. You mentioned... Um you know, around the decision to close Rockwell and Sons was that you were a little bit more mature and it wasn't the kind of food that you would eat, you know, on a fortnightly basis. Tell us a little bit about your approach to food and cooking and, and what you'd like to do. Um, it's, I, I, I really enjoy building relationships with, um, like farmers and, and I, I know it's kind of a cliche thing that all chefs say nowadays, but, um, it's, I I like getting the farm list um, or I have when I was doing more menu stuff uh, now I, I don't uh, really do much of any food I just help people with their ideas but like, when I'm building a menu or something I, I just love getting the emails from the farms and them telling me what they have as opposed to be like I want to make a fennel dish and or, or whatever and, and buying I mean you get good produce from the, the veg suppliers in Melbourne there's no shortage of great produce in this country but like having 
knowing that this the, the farmers like picking on Wednesday and giving it to you on Thursday is a different ball game, and and it's really a, a restrictively fun way to cook because you see what's coming in, and you build your menus around that. And it, I, I can see how some people would think that seems really it restricts you in a negative way, but I think it restricts you in a good way because it forces you to use produce that you may not be, you wouldn't may not normally use or, or force you to use ideas how to, uh, to, to work through it and stuff. And I, I just love cooking like that. And it's for, it's pretty much like how we ate growing up. Obviously my grandparents would preserve things in jars and they, <laughs> I guess they would fill, fill our basement, but it, you would definitely eat, uh, squash casserole almost i don't know three or four times in a week it seemed like in the summertime and squash were growing everywhere because you know like uh, summer squash our little crook neck squash that we have in the south they're like a little uh yellow very similar to zucchini and they just they grow the same as zucchini everywhere you can't stop them once you you know like if you grow zucchini at your house now you have to eat zucchini like you have to beg your friends to take it from you because there's so much zucchini during the summer like it, just on one plant if you grow in your backyard and that's the same so we would um you just have to eat what's in season all the time right, to utilize its product and that's um kind of i guess trickled into how i cook now it's just um really like chloe from somerset heritage produce uh in seymour was so much fun to work with she would um she would send me texts about things that were too small to put on her farm list and asked me if i wanted to buy them to use because we'd always take stuff like that whether we would preserve it or use it on sunday lunch menus at bar liberty or you can put most things on a pizza capitano that's a that's one thing i learned like everything everything cooks well on pizza so like um but yeah that's how that's how i like to cook kind of um and having <laughs> having add adhd it's having a limited amount of products that you can use really helps you <laughs> menu plan as well. You know, you can, you can cook with these 20 things this week. Um, that, that becomes the, a fun way to build stuff. I think. You originally came to Australia to sleep on a couch for a couple of months, but uh, you've been here for over a decade. What, what, what is it about Melbourne that's um, kept you here? Um, I, I just love the city and the, and how, it just embraces everything. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, art or, or film or food, uh, you know, beer, wine, cheese, it's, you know, it just, the the city is so welcoming and, and, and they're so supportive. Um, like just the best, I mean, we live, I say the city, I, I mean, I should probably, be truthful. I, I never leave the inner north. <laughs> as far away, as far west I go as Carlton, as far east I go as Abbotsford, and uh, you know maybe Fitzroy North or Carlton North every now and again. But our little pocket of of restaurants and and where I live uh, um, is amazing. And I think it, it's the whole city. I, you know, I got friends with restaurants out of the city, and it's the same. They, we talk about it a lot. It's the same the same uh, sentiment. It's just like how supportive everyone is and how great the customers are. And, and once you gain their trust, they're open to try anything or, 
drink anything or, 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 or you know, the, there's no limits to the, the clientele around here, I think, in terms of like being open-minded. You've got three incredible venues that um, really speak of the middle market uh, in Melbourne and doing amazing things. What do you love about what you do? I think, it, I mean, I love cooking. I, I love the actual physicality of it and, you know, the sounds and smells and, and colors of cooking. But I think the, the, the kind of the best thing about what we do is uh, as an industry, like we're, the, we're who people turn to to celebrate. Uh, uh, you know, or, or, or to fall in love or to celebrate love or anything as corny as that. It, it really is. It's us to deliver the, the best nights of people's lives. You know, like you come in for, you, know, you catch up with two friends on a Tuesday and you haven't seen them in a couple of years. And next day, next thing you know, you've been at the restaurant for five years and you've, you know, had a couple bottles of wine or a couple of cocktails and you've had a great meal and it, and, and you go on and people remember that people talk about these meals and these experiences um, more so than probably anything. And that's like, I think that's the beauty of the industry. And, and sometimes it gets lost and because it is a hard industry to, to, to a be successful in it and B to actually work in. Um, but it's take a step back and really look at what we do. Um, for people's uh, enjoyment in their lives, I think is, is a is a beautiful thing about the industry. It's a really wonderful uh, vision of of what hospitality means to to everyone. Um, Casey, it's been an absolute honour catching up with you today to hear just a part of your story. Um, please keep in touch, and love to catch up again soon. Yeah, no worries. Thank you so much for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>